Good morning, everyone. I'm Hayley Channer. I run the Economic Security Program at the United States Study Centre, and I'm so delighted to be part of the USSC team here delivering this conference today. It is my great pleasure to invite um, Minister Madeleine King to the stage. Uh, Minister King is the uh, Minister for Resources and Minister for the Northern Territory, and she has held this portfolio since the election in June last year. She has just returned from Washington DC where she accompanied Prime Minister Albanese on his state visit and she's obviously been privy to some very private conversations, just her and the Prime Minister and a handful of other people in DC. So her insights today make her a very hot commodity. I would say. <laughs> um, the minister has been um, the member for Brand since 2016, and she's held a number of other portfolios before now. Uh, she was the Shadow Minister for Trade, the Shadow Minister Assisting for Small Business, the Shadow Minister for Consumer Affairs, and she's served on a number of parliamentary committees, including Foreign Affairs and Defence, Economics and Human Rights, and she was one of the inaugural leaders of our sister institute, the Perth US Asia Centre in Perth. Can I please invite you to welcome Minister King to the stage. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Uh, uh, good morning, uh, everybody, and, and thank you for, to the United States uh, Study Centre for the invitation uh, to speak today to this very full room. I will just acknowledge uh, Senator Birmingham, my, my friend and colleague uh, from the Senate. We worked together a lot when I was in opposition, and I, I do thank him for that. Uh, collaborative effort we uh, did in trade. Uh, of course, we are gathered uh, today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present. Uh, I extend that respect to any uh, members of our First Nations community here this morning. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, the work of the United States uh, Studies Centre uh, and their commitment to furthering Australia's strong partnership uh, with America, and I really congratulate you on setting up this new forum. I'm honoured to be part of it, and I'm sure it will be a great continuing success. Uh, it was alluded to uh, in the introduction. I'm not sure how many of you be aware. I've not had a. I've had. I've had rather a significant connection uh, with the USSC as the founding executive of the West Coast counterpart, the Perth US Asia Centre. Uh, in 2012, some of you may recall, US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, visited Perth with uh, our then ambassador to the US, Kim Beasley, on the invitation of the then Minister for Defence, Stephen Smith to announce the creation of an international think tank in Perth, Western Australia, that would focus on strategy in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and later this year, we're going to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Perth US Asia Centre, which had emerged from the ongoing efforts of this, the United States Study Centre. I'm, I'm really very proud of what the Perth US Asia Centre and the USSC have achieved together uh, over the years to further our shared understanding of the world in which we all live. And it's important to acknowledge as well the work of the American Australian Association in establishing both the USSC and the Perth US Asia Centre. Uh, and I particularly would like to recognise the former chair of the AAA, John Olson, uh, who did so much uh, to further the development of the centre for which I worked there in Perth. And I acknowledge uh, all the members of the board of the, the AAA, uh, the Perth US Asia Centre and the USSC board that will be here today. Uh, and I've mentioned him already, but I'd also like to, of course, recognise uh, that earlier in your program, you had the former member for Brand 
former ambassador of Australia to the United States, former governor of Western Australia, and chair of the board of the Perth US Asia Centre, and my friend uh, Kim Beasley AC, to whom this extra special relationship with the United States and Australia owes such a great debt. And I'm really sorry I wasn't here to hear the fireside chat before Kim, but I have heard it was great. Uh, we got back to me at the other conference I was at, so um, maybe it's recorded and I'll watch it later. Uh, friends, uh, the ties between Australia and the US are deep uh, and enduring. Our alliance was formed on the battlefields of the First World War, but it is exercised in very practical ways every day through our shared commitment to democracy, free enterprise and a rules-based global order. This alliance is, as we know, shifting into a historic new phase under the banner of AUKUS. AUKUS has a very uh, special significance for me and for my home state of Western Australia. My electorate of Brand will see more frequent port visits by United States Navy and Royal Navy nuclear-powered submarines at HMAS Stirling as part of the rotational presence agreed to under AUKUS. Now, I grew up and I now live about less than two kilometres from HMAS Stirling, so I have uh, a great interest uh, in this uh, immense undertaking. Uh, the rotational presence of uh, the other navies will come not only in the form of submarines and ships, but also, importantly, in personnel. Uh, in Rockingham, uh, it will be transformed by the US uh, and UK service personnel who will rotate through HMAS Stirling under the first phase of the AUKUS pathway. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this, uh, not just for the economic benefits it will bring to my hometown of Rockingham, but also to the social and community benefits. But there will also be challenges, meeting the need for improved road infrastructure and social infrastructure like housing and childcare. Uh, but these are challenges we can address and benefits we will all welcome, just as my community will welcome US service women and men and give them a home away from home in that beautiful seaside town of Rockingham. And the Albanese government will continue to work closely with the WA government and the local governments of the area to ensure we are well prepared to meet this historic endeavour. <clears throat> now, we can trace the DNA of AUKUS to Australia's uh, two Asian neighbours policy adopted in 1987 in the Hawke government. Again, uh, we can thank uh, Kim Beasley for this. The two oceans policy recognised the strategic, strategic significance of the Indian Ocean to both Australia and its allies in maintaining regional stability and led directly to HMAS Stirling becoming the important piece of defence infrastructure it is today. And as I flew across the continent yesterday to be here today, I got to thinking that Kim's Two Oceans, Two Oceans Naval Policy uh, recognised the Indo-Pacific 36 years before it was really a thing. So thank you, Kim, for your foresight. And it was a policy, of course, driven under the leadership of a Western Australian. And so therefore, it demonstrated that Australia needs voices from right across the country to contribute to important discussions like the one we are having here today. Our shared history and beliefs are only part of the magnificent evolving relationship between the US and Australia. The geology uh, of our country is now a key feature of the Australia-US alliance. Last week in Washington uh, with uh, Prime Minister Albanese, our two governments uh, made progress on improved critical minerals and rare earth supply chains and renewable technologies development. Working together to ensure the refined minerals and materials are available to achieve our 
shared climate and clean energy goals will be vitally important to our collective national interests. It will enable our countries to meet ambitious emissions reduction targets and help meet the growing energy and adaptation needs of the entire Indo-Pacific region. Energy security, security is vital to the stability of our region. Australia has played an important role in providing for the energy security of this region for many decades through the export of gas and coal to our neighbours, and Australia will continue to be a reliable and trusted supplier of energy to the region as it strives toward net zero emissions by 2050. And it's important to remember that if Australia does not supply energy to the region, someone else will. That is because our region needs uh, that energy and is a responsibility of government to ensure their communities have power and have heat. I would prefer that that energy was provided by Australia with our high environmental, social and governance standards rather than by others. It should be noted also our ongoing work with the United States will also be vital for our defence industries, which increasingly rely on technologies such as guided ordnance and undersea sonar that are dependent on critical minerals and rare earth elements. The International Energy Agency estimates demand for critical minerals needed for the world's energy transition will likely double or even quadruple in the next 20 years. And Australia can and should be the preferred supplier for this transition. We are, after all, after all the world's number one producer of lithium, the second largest cobalt producer, and the fourth largest producer of rare earth elements. Uh, and all of these elements are essential to all of that clean green technology that we know we all need. And as I said before, most of these are also needed by the defence industry to produce the materials needed to prevail on a modern battlefield. Rare earth magnets are vital for advanced missile guidance systems, laser, radar and sonar, as well as aviation and satellites. Germanium, recently subjected to an export ban by China, is used in night vision equipment and fibre optics. Graphite, which is now more recently under export restriction, is needed in jet engines and in all matter of defence technologies, including missiles uh, and rockets. According to the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, a Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarine needs over four tonnes of rare earth materials to produce, and the F-35 multi-purpose fighter jet requires over 400 kilograms of this resource. This journey we've begun with the US will bring further new opportunities for Australian mining and renewable energy companies. And we've seen genuine results from this enhanced bilateral cooperation. We've taken a big step forward uh, on our critical minerals ambitions when the Prime Minister met with President Biden uh, and signed the Climate Critical Minerals and Clean Energy Transformation Compact in Hiroshima earlier this year. And that compact provides the framework for the coordinating of national policies and investment to support our agreement to make climate, critical minerals and clean energy a central pillar of the alliance. And as I also said, we took another historic step toward these commitments during our visit uh, to the US last week. And it was a, a really tremendous honour for me to take part in that visit and to meet uh, and discuss these matters with uh, President Biden and his exceptional team. 
A new joint Australia-US task force has been established to progress our collaboration plans on critical minerals and rare earths. I met with my counterparts, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and Presidential Senior Advisor Amos Hochstein in our inaugural task force meeting. And the task force identified areas in which Australian and American governments can work together to increase investment in critical minerals, mining and processing projects and bolster the all-important market transparency that is needed in this sector. The task force also agreed to support research and development into efficient technologies and practices related to sustainable mining, enhanced mineral recovery and unconventional sources and also new processing methods. The task force will deepen cooperation to deliver sustainable, resilient and secure critical minerals and clean energy to the world and reduce global emissions. Now, it's a big step to have this level of engagement with our US counterparts, and we are each determined that this task force will be action-oriented because there is absolutely no time to waste. We must act with urgency and with focus. For too long, uh, we have outsourced and offshored the processing and refining of our critical minerals and rare earths, uh, and now we must compete. To ensure Australia has the technical refining capacity so that we can make more things here, but importantly, to diversify the global market for the materials that will be critical to the green energy transformation and for defence applications. On industry level, we're already seeing results. Uh, for example, the United States lithium refiner Albemarle is investing a further $2 billion to double production capacity at its lithium hydroxide plant in Kemerton in southwest WA, and that expanded output will produce enough lithium hydroxide for an estimated 2.4 million electric vehicles annually. And in January, Australian miner Iron Air secured a staggering $1 billion loan from the US Department of Energy for a project to develop its lithium boron project in Nevada. Now, once that is up and running, that project will support production of lithium for around 370,000 electric vehicles each year. And perhaps one of the most prominent examples of US government funding of an Australian critical minerals project is the Linus Rare Earths project, and that has been supported to build a heavy rare earth separation plant in Texas. It is a project that will broaden the supply chain for responsibly produced rare earths and bolster Linus's important growth strategy. And another great endorsement of Australia's mineral processing potential, General Motors is investing $100 million in Queensland Pacific Medical, Med, Metals' proposed tech project in Townsville. As you know, and I'm sure this has been talked about before today, President Biden signed one of the world's most ambitious uh, climate laws, the Inflation Reduction Act contains an estimated $369 billion in new spending plus generous tax incentives to accelerate America's clean energy transitions. It's a staggering figure, something many of us a year later are still coming to terms with. Significant investments we made to jumpstart research and development and commercialisation of renewable technologies like carbon capture and storage and also clean hydrogen. Investments will be directed toward boosting domestic manufacturing capacity. And in recognition of America's industry's large-scale supply needs, the IRA will encourage procurement of critical supplies domestically or from free trade partners. 
Bear in mind that together with tra transitioning to renewables, the Biden administration is also looking to shore up America's geostrategic interests. To that extent, the IRA is also focused on diversifying clean energy supply chains and working with international partners and like-minded countries to address global energy security. Competition across rapidly evolving critical minerals and global renewables space is absolutely intense at the moment, and the Australian government acknowledges that fact. It is important for our relationship and the continued US investment in Australia's rare earths and critical minerals industry that everyone is aware we have a trusted, well-established foreign investment review board. Like the US, we are strongly committed also to high environmental sustainability and governance standards. And as we've showed with the development expansion of WA's iron ore, oil and gas sectors, we can create globally significant industries. So the Inflation Reduction Act represents a significant opportunity for Australia to build on our, our reliance, become a key partner to the US on critical minerals and rare earth processing and a clean energy technology development. The demand for minerals and materials that would be needed to decarbonise our economies to reach net zero is so great that we must work together. No one country can meet this demand alone, and working together will bring mutual benefits. Working together through the US-Australia Task Force on Critical Minerals will ensure that all of our communities benefit. Of course, our alliance with the United States is about much more than defence, security, trade and investment. Uh, it is also about genuine friendships. And we now have a new opportunity to develop Australia's critical minerals industries to further those friendships and to work with the United States to strengthen global supply chains, to achieve climate commitments, to ensure our security and to strengthen our shared security framework. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Minister. That was a fantastic um, overview of the priorities in the relationship. And um, Minister King was the only other cabinet minister to travel with our prime minister to Washington, DC. Uh, so as the minister for resources, I think that signals a significant uptick in the importance of critical minerals resources in the Australia-US relationship. And obviously, you also mentioned uh, this huge industrial package the US is delivering, the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Uh, for some people in the audience, they will be well acquainted with the IRA. For other people, they will think, isn't that the Irish Republican Army? Yes, yeah, we um, so, <laughs> I mean, even Biden has said uh, he wishes he didn't call it the Inflation A Reduction bit. Act. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're all wondering here, with the huge size of industrial subsidies um, sort of sloshing around from the United States, these tax incentives um, and other rewards for industry, basically, to set up shop in the United States. Um, clearly, the United States needs what we have in terms of our critical and raw materials, but there is also this question around both talent and the workforce here in Australia being sucked to the United States. And when we're trying to build our own clean energy uh, industry and our energy transition, that can be somewhat of a concern mm. to Australians here who are trying to, to raise that industry. So what is Australia doing with the United States to actually cooperate rather than compete when you have something like the IRA. Yeah, thanks uh, Hayley. Uh, yeah, I, I wish uh, President Biden hadn't called it the Inflation Reduction Act either. <laughs> it's confusing in many ways, not least of all uh, it being called the IRA. Um, to, to 
The risk of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, sucking out investment but also workforce is, is real and that's uh, a fair point to raise. The, the compact between President Biden and Prime Minister Albanese is really uh, the, the principal um, place where we will make sure that both our countries can work together so that uh, the US can achieve its ambitions under that act and, and other ambitions it has as well uh, and that Australia can be part of that. Uh, also the agreement that uh, uh, Australia's uh, critical minerals will be, be treated as, as a domestic source for the purpose uh, of the uh, IRA because of our free trade agreement signed many years ago is another really important part of that. Uh, so there, there are two things that, that will help us keep uh, that workforce but also that investment, uh, but there will be competition for it, no doubt about it. The, most important thing, though, that helps us keep uh, that, that technological capacity is literally our geology uh, and our extraordinary resources sector that we have right now. So uh, geology, we can't move. That's the one thing that cannot be changed. It's been made baking over billions. Baking for a long time. <laughs> yeah, baking for a long time. Uh, and uh, technical capacity and exploration by exploration companies, but more importantly, great institutions of government like the Geoscience Australia means that uh, we are able to identify uh, critical minerals deposits and rare earth deposits, quite frankly, much better than most places in the world. Certainly much better than the US Geological Survey, although they're very skilled as well. But Geoscience Australia should not be underestimated in its importance in this extraordinary endeavour we're, we're seeking to achieve. But our resources sector right now has uh, some of the highest technical capacity in the world. I get pretty annoyed uh, when I see in newspaper articles, or also sometimes someone accidentally slips it into a speech of mine um, about Australian resources industry being about dig and ship, and there's nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, to, to get iron ore out of the Pilbara and make it an efficient operation requires extraordinary technical capacity uh, in automation, but in, in processing and just logistics. It's such advanced logistics, you, you can't... Um, underestimate it. I mean, they, they use things from the resources industry to explore Mars now, so that's that's some indication of how advanced it is. Uh, so that is why I'm confident <laughs> the workforce will remain and, in fact, will attract uh, people from the rest of the world to Australia's resources sector to learn and then perhaps take that skill back. So I mentioned that not only is the US but Australia is also going through this huge clean energy transition and part of the energy mix needs to be gas and mm. gas is also included under your portfolio. Obviously Australia is a huge exporter of gas, of LNG to the region. Um, we have a lot of audience members who are from Japan and Australia has a fantastic trading relationship with Japan. But um, the problem here, the tension, is that we're trying to transition away from gas. And if you look at the Australia-Japan relationship on this, I mean, 43% um, of Japan's LNG is supplied by Australia, and that, that amount is increasing. So how does our government deal with this tension of needing to be a major exporter of energy to the region, of gas to the region, when we're also trying to undertake this transition? What type of... Um, solutions do we have in place to address that in our relationship with countries like Japan? Yeah. Well, the government of Japan adopted a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050 long before an Australian government did. So, so they have been working on their pathway to decarbonise uh, for, for a lot longer than we have. And I um, have a lot of respect for that. Same for South Korea, another, another country that we send a lot of gas to. So 
ga Australian gas is part of their transformation, uh, and that's important. They have. Uh, vastly uh, more huge population, more requirements for power, uh, and they the, the Japanese are an extraordinary uh, force for peace and stability in the region. So we need to do all we absolutely always can to support uh, Japan's security, and part of that security is energy. Uh, we know what happened. Wars have been fought over energy every single time. So, you know, that's why energy security is so vitally important. Uh, so my guiding line is that we will always uh, do what we can to make sure Japan gets the gas it needs because we need stability in the region. And, and that's, uh, that's what brings peace and prosperity and therefore the ability to, to um, do the mining we need to do to achieve other things. So I'm very clear-eyed about that. Uh, there are pressures, of course, and we, we have net zero emissions, and our, our government is committed to, to achieving that. But it's a bit easier for us in Australia because we have alternatives. Uh, we have much more space for uh, solar uh, power generation, much more ability to have onshore and offshore wind. Uh, we have less people to, to have to provide energy for. Uh, so, you know, our challenges are different between our two countries and other countries as well. But also point out uh, that the, the greatest growth in gas for Australian domestic use is for the processing of minerals in Western Australia. So that is why some of these projects uh, of expansion off the west coast and north coast of this continent are so vastly important because it's, it's not about uh, all, just us or Australia, it's about providing energy security to our region but also about processing the critical minerals we will need to have the wind uh, turbines and all the things we want to decarbonise, uh, but also importantly uh, for our um, you know, defence applications. So, so gas will be important, but we have the safeguards mechanisms and other policies where uh, the extraction and use of that has to be uh, either offset or emissions lessened or penalties paid under the safeguard mechanism. And, and that's what we're working toward. Because we do want to get to the same place, right? We want to get to net zero emissions by 2050, but we're going to be responsible about it. The next question that I have, it goes to another resources question, but it's actually financial resources, uh, money, and actually how there's a lot of competition for money these days, including around the cabinet table, um, which you were a part of. I mean, you just announced this um, new $2 billion package for critical mineral processing and mining, and I'm sure the industry wants a lot more money. But when you're among your colleagues in Cabinet, there's all these other domestic financial pressures in Australia. I mean, earlier this year, our Treasurer said that there were five major expenses that the country was facing. Out the NDIS, which is our disability insurance scheme, health, aged care, defence spending, and the fifth one was just servicing national debt. So when you've got all of these other very powerful figures in the room, how do you as Minister for Resources fight for your piece of the pie in national um, resources? Well, I guess my piece of the pie is a bit different. Um, my portfolio and the industry that it, it um, it's responsible for feeds that pie. <laughs> you know, without, without the export earnings uh, from our commodities industries, there would not be that money to fund the NDIS or our social uh, network or the hospitals or the health. You know, it just wouldn't be there. So uh, the resources sector and therefore my portfolio underpins 
the, the very thing you So they all like about. you. They think you're great. Well, I don't think it's, <laughs> it's widely acknowledged. Though, but you'll see, every time you see something in, in the, the national broadsheets or treasurer's speech, it will say commodities have risen and, and it's this has benefited the budget bottom line by so many billions upon billions of dollars. But what they mean by commodities um, is iron ore and coal and gas and gold and increasingly lithium. So that's what feeds our national budget uh, and that's why the resources sector is important. So as to um, funding for it, I mean, the resources sector uh, is well funded itself. Uh, we know that. We say there's lots of profits and that's that's fine by me and it should be that way. Those profits are redirected and reinvested into this country for new mining projects. So I think the, some of the, the best work that a government can do for the resources sector is making sure what they really want is addressed. And that is right now about approvals processes, which is vitally important uh, to make sure we uh, make that more efficient. And, and it, our approvals process is more efficient than many countries in the world, uh, certainly much more efficient than the US. You can actually mine here and, you know, out of sight more efficient than the, the European Union where you sort of can't mine anymore. So, you know, we, we do have a lot of advantages. Um, we need to address for the sake of the resources industry issues around workforce requirements. So that means influence in the being working with the migration policy, which is really important, around housing for some of these remote communities in which uh, the mines uh, exist. But and then in the case of uh, critical minerals, we, we kind of follow the lead of Australian governments before us where um, you know, one of the most significant investment into Australian iron ore was Mount Chenna with Rio Tinto, and and that was Bob Hawke with the the Premier of China at the time making that that important link to link to enable that investment to happen. And then later, uh, John Howard, uh, as Prime Minister, uh, you know, prosecuted the case for partnerships with China on our oil and gas industry. Uh, and then last week, we see Prime Minister Albanese is doing following that same uh, model, going to the US to say, you know, we've got to work together to make sure we build this critical minerals mm. and rare earths uh, elements uh, industry. And that, that is probably the best role for uh, cabinet ministers like me and especially prime minister to make sure we can we get that investment in and make sure we enable the resources sector because, um, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty good at funding themselves and that's an entirely good thing. Uh, whereas social networks and health services simply can't do that. So, Look, we've got time for one more question before I invite my colleague Victoria Cooper up to host the next panel. And um, without meaning to put you on the spot, you did mention China. And obviously, over the last couple of years, Australia's faced a lot of economic coercion from China, uh, targeting you know everything from barley and beef, cotton, coal, wine. Um, but the other thing that it did target was coal. Uh, it didn't touch our iron ore. Uh, it really wanted to continue buying our iron ore. But it did touch coal. And obviously, without going into your discussions in Washington, I assume China would have been a topic, but what type of conversations are you having in terms of Australian businesses and, and corporations about diversifying or thinking about other markets? Or is there still concern that commodities will be targeted by China in future? Oh, I, I think uh, 
the results speak for themselves, and that you know that the most, the biggest earner in Australian exports, uh, iron ore, was not touched because it was essential, and that's because we're you know the, the largest um, supplier of it for the whole world. So there's not much choice but to buy sometimes from Australia. Though there are other, are other choices, but not on the magnitude or of the quality of iron ore uh, and the the price and the efficiency, and it's. It, it's an extraordinary market setup that with these uh, the shipping lanes uh, between Port Hedland uh, and to ports in in China is remarkable. And if you haven't been to Port Hedland and seen the port, well, you you're missing out on one of the greatest logistic exercises you can see in this country. With three percent of our GDP goes out of that uh, port, uh, so the sheer magnitude of it meant that it wasn't going to be touched. Uh, uh, gas may be a bit similar. That's an energy security issue, but there are alternatives we know for the supply of gas, and China's able to get that if it needs to. But then there are also a lot more clients for gas as well, because not everyone has a steelmaking industry, but most countries have a need for, for gas for power. Um, so coal, yeah, that was very problematic, uh, especially for the the. the seafarers who were stuck on the ships for a number of months off the coast of China. It was a terrible situation for them as individuals, but uh, we found other markets for the coal um, and and some of it, you know, went shifted around <laughs> international markets in uh, not so clear ways and so market transparency was lost for a while. But, um, you know, in the, in the end, it, it's it's come back, so I, I don't think that we'll, we'll see that again. I would add one commodity you didn't mention was um, lobsters was also, and I think it's still uh, <laughs> under the uh, the trade action. And as a Western Australian, that has been terrific uh, in terms <laughs> of my ability to get $20 crayfish from the IGA for the last three summers. Um, but I know uh, it would be better uh, for uh, uh, rock lobster fisher women and men to be able to sell back into China because that was a, a really highly developed logistics exercise as well where you could get live crayfish from uh, a boat in uh, Geraldton up to uh, Beijing you know within the day it's remarkable remarkable I did love how Australia was able to very quickly pivot and our industries were able to pivot and look overseas for other opportunities so I think this is something that we'll have to continue talking to industry about in future and um, now we're also going to hear about some of of the US political developments that um, we can look forward to in terms of how we move forward and work with the United States on these and other issues. So before I turn over to our next panel, can I please invite the audience to thank Madeleine King for her address. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.